Welcome back to Your New Mexico Government for the 2022 Legislative Session. I'm Kaveh Movahead. This is episode 13 of this year's series, and it's a wrap-up show. We hosted a reporter's roundtable earlier this week on Facebook Live and put the video up on the KUNM and New Mexico In Focus Facebook pages, but we realize not everyone engages with Facebook, so we're giving you the audio here as a podcast episode. We recorded 10 days after the session ended. The break gave us a chance to reflect on what lawmakers accomplished this year and to think about topics that we're likely to see again through the year in special sessions, interim committee meetings, and maybe even in the 2023 legislative session. We have a great group of reporters from around the state who followed the session closely and shared their insights with us. Let's jump right into that audio as I'm introducing our panelists. Joining us today, we have Algernon Damasa. He's a reporter and columnist for the Las Cruces Sun News, who covers not just southern New Mexico, but also politics across the state. Hello, Algernon. Hello. We are also pleased to have Hannah Grover, the environment and energy reporter from New Mexico Political Reports. Thanks for being here, Hannah. Thank you. And welcome to your extra large bird. What's the bird's name? His name's June. All right. Then we have the dynamic duo from Source New Mexico. First, Sean Griswold, who spent a lot of time watching legislators this month uh, on education issues of equity for Native people and even some reporting on budget and language access. Hi, Sean. Thanks for being here. Definitely very happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Finally, also from Source New Mexico, it's Austin Fisher. Well, he did report on landlord-tenant law, interest rate caps for short-term loans, and a bunch of other important stuff. He really zoned in on criminal justice through the legislative session. Thanks for being here, Austin. Thanks for having us. Yeah. um, I have questions for all of you, but I also want this to be conversational. So, you know, as I'm bouncing around to each one of you, please, any of you, feel free to jump in if you want to add something. Um, First, let's go to Algernon, though. Let's do a survey of the session. There were only 64 bills that made it out of the session this time around. I've read that's a record low. What happened? A 30-day legislative session happened, uh, or uh, also known as drinking from a fire hose. Um, Over 500 bills were filed, um, hoping for a chance at being heard through multiple committees, getting floor votes, and sent on their way to the governor's office uh, within 30 days. New Mexico does this. We alternate 60-day with 30-day sessions. 30-day sessions happen in these even-numbered years, and they're supposed to focus primarily on budget. However, the governor does have discretion to put other items on the call. Lawmakers can also file legislation that they, as they deem appropriate. It may or may not get uh, parked as being non-germane to the session, which some things happen, which happened to some bills. And so really with this uh, part-time legislature, this is how we do it. And it does mean that a lot of bills um, don't get heard under normal circumstances or don't make their way and have to come back in a future session. Why there were even fewer bills than usual this time around, um, a number of things happened. Of course, there were some bills that just generated a lot of debate in multiple committees. And so a lot of committee time was spent to uh, regular debate. And there were also some delaying tactics that were used during the session. Um, And during these short sessions, 
time is extremely precious. And so uh, the procedural moves to delay pieces of legislation uh, cost some time as well. Okay, so that time crunch in short sessions and even in the longer two-month sessions that we have every other year, it's always an issue. Uh, besides the format, we seem to talk about who the legislators are every year, meaning they all have other jobs and they do this kind of on the side for a month or two. Uh, it puts us in a position where those making decisions often rely on lobbyists for info on the bills. Uh, and people without means have a tough time if they really you know, want to serve as legislators or get involved. This year, again, there was talk of paying legislators. What happened with that, Algernon? That's an ongoing conversation. Um, Not much progress on it in this particular session. It's an ongoing discussion as to whether New Mexico should have a regular, full-time, and paid, salaried legislature. Um, There are pros and cons. Uh, The pros that you usually hear are that this would really allow lawmakers to focus on crafting good legislation without having to park it into these short sessions and occasional special sessions. Uh, The cons that are usually brought up in response to this is uh, that this would create a sort of full-time political class. The problem with that argument arguably is that you still have a political class when you have a part-time non-salaried legislature, you have lawmakers who can afford um, to go to Santa Fe for 30 to 60 days at a time. And that means they may be lawyers with a, with a practice that they can leave for periods of time. They might be retirees. They might be business owners who have employees who can take over the shop. You don't have your run of the mill. You certainly don't have working class people who are able to make that commitment and serve and bring their perspective and experience to lawmaking. Um, And I don't know that there's really an easy answer to this, except that what we do know is that you can change the rules of the game, but industrial interests, commercial interests, political groups, lobbyists will adjust and find ways to uh, influence the process, whether it's a full-time or part-time legislature. Was there talk this year of uh, turning the session into a year-round occupation? That's not something I heard, but I know it's come up in the past. I don't think I didn't notice anything filed to make that happen. It would need to be a constitutional amendment. Um, um, And I don't think that that was uh, anything. But the conversation certainly took place. I mean, I had conversations with lawmakers about this, but I do every year, especially as the days grow short and lawmakers grow frustrated because their bills are waiting a hearing. Okay, well, the primary reason for the 30-day meetings in, uh, you know, even number of years is to create a budget for the next fiscal year. Sean, you filed a couple of reports on budget. It was bigger this year than it had been in the past, ever. Um, and yet we also set aside a huge sum of money for the future. What kinds of things got a budget boost this year? Is it new programs or more money to expand existing budgets? Um, so much of it is just really like providing more money to people who like state employees, state agencies, teachers. I mean, everybody who works for the state is getting paid and that's a substantial amount of our workforce here. So there was a, there was really like taking care of the people that work for the state of New Mexico. Now on top of like the record oil and gas surplus that the state of New Mexico is working with, they also still had to spend a like large portion of the, um, 
uh, federal um, federal relief money that came from the Biden administration. It was close to $500 million. And what we saw happen here was overall increases in raises for New Mexico state workers. We're talking teachers, we're talking clerks, we're talking anybody who, who works for the state of New Mexico. On top of that, the state of New Mexico also increased its um, minimum wage for state employees to $15 an hour. Now, that's a, now there's a really big like line there because some people like read that and think that New Mexico like overall has increased its minimum wage to $15, but it's really only hitting state employees. Um, you also saw teachers get a significant boost in pay um, depending on like what experience and how long they've been teaching in New Mexico, uh, teachers could see anywhere between $10,000. Most teachers will see a $10,000 increase on top of a possible 7% increase where you might see an average teacher salary in New Mexico for somebody who's been working anywhere between five and 15 years. Um, be about sixty-five to sixty-six thousand dollars a year, which is a pretty um, substantial increase. It's also on par, and if not, and actually higher than what other neighboring states are offering. Which was a big push from the governor from the very beginning was to get teachers paid. Uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly how much of that money that they're going to be receiving is going to go towards higher. Um, health insurance premiums, but there's still going to be more money going to, going going towards teachers. State police officers are also getting a big boost in raise, as well as um, uh, judicial employees, judges saw a significant pay and raise. Now, there's not as many judges as there are teachers in New Mexico, but they're going to still see about a 30% raise in their salary when it comes to this idea that Algernon was talking about with public with public employees who are working in the service, like who are working as a servant to us as New Mexican taxpayers, how we value their work and how we value their position. And so there was a major push to not only get teachers raises, but those people in judiciary, as well as those state police officers, um, so yeah, there's been an overall increase across the board for New Mexico to spend money. And when he said in terms of savings, New Mexico is still looking to save about 30% of its annual surplus from this, this year. Now they spent all of the ARPA money, the federal relief money that all had to be spent. But when it comes to the surplus as to how much money New Mexico has to spend when it comes from oil and gas revenues, as well as other taxable revenues, New Mexico is just under 30% as to how much is going to be saved for any future rainy day funds or anything that could affect any of these boosts and services that we might be seeing. Okay, well, the flip side of spending and spending plans is that we have to consider revenue. You just mentioned oil and gas. Algernon, you reported on a possible tax on space flights from our mostly publicly funded spaceport. What happened to that? Uh, aborted before launch, I guess. Um, uh, two House members, Matthew McQueen and Jason Harper, proposed that, well, first of all, they discovered that a New Mexico law that actually predates the building of our spaceport had this interesting carve out when it comes to taxing commercial spaceflight. And basically the carve out um, excludes people who buy tickets to fly to space from gross receipts taxes. They're considered payloads and payloads are exempt under the, under the tax law. So these two lawmakers thought, well, that seems strange. A, a person who can afford to buy a $450,000 ticket uh, to visit space for a few minutes could probably also pay a gross receipts tax. Or with gross receipts taxes, you don't necessarily even have to 
pass that along to the consumer, the company could absorb that and pay it to the state. Anyway, gross receipts tax uh, for a 450,000 space flight ticket would be $30,000 and change, uh, which I'm sure some county managers would appreciate having for emergency services and infrastructure projects in their counties. Um, this was shot down in committee. Uh, Republicans and Democrats alike uh, felt that it was too soon to talk about uh, what essentially amounts to a wealth tax on an emerging industry. Virgin Galactic is hoping to start regular commercial service to space from Southern New Mexico's spaceport at the end of this year. And the proposal I suspect is probably going to come back and we'll see if lawmakers grow more receptive to it as, the, uh, as this industry gets off the ground, so to speak. It's interesting that somebody was forward thinking enough to write in that, I don't know if I should call it a loophole, but write in that provision prior to the spaceport even existing. Yeah, in fairness, what it does is it, it only refers to payloads and doesn't mention passengers. But when the lawmakers sought clarification, and actually other taxpayers had asked for clarification, the Taxation and Revenue Department ruled that it interprets that to include human passengers. And so the way to fix that uh, in the lawmakers' view, was to amend the legislation and make some other cleanups just so that you have good, clear tax policy. Okay, well, since we're talking about taxes, there were also votes on cutting sales taxes and income taxes on Social Security. Considering we're in a pretty good financial situation right now, why were those ideas controversial? Um, I, I don't know that the concept was controversial so much as the details of how it gets done. Uh, for instance, with the Social Security versus uh, the Social Security, it was a question of do we just exclude everybody's social, everybody who uh, receives Social Security benefits, or do we put an income cap so that this benefit is favoring people with lower income rather than higher income? That was the compromise that was made. So. Some people in New Mexico who receive Social Security will continue to pay the tax. There was also a question about, well, what about military benefits uh, from, you know, for veterans? Uh, so you know, they, there, there was some work to do on the proposals that way. And really quickly with the GRT, um, one of the, one of the uh, hot issues that came up was there was a proposed moratorium for, against local governments raising their local GRT in response to a drop in the state GRT, seeing that opportunity and, and taking up their taxes so that they get uh, some additional revenue. There was a proposal to put a bar on that for five years so that taxpayers didn't get sort of dinged on the local end, but that got stripped out of the final bill. Okay. And, you know, a moment ago, Sean mentioned that massive amount of money that was kind of left unspent stuck into the coffers. Algernon, I imagine that makes more fiscally conservative voters and legislators happy. Is that fair to say? Or maybe they had other spending priorities that weren't addressed? Well, I think it makes everybody happy. I mean, Sean, you know, explained it really well that they put a they put a much larger um, they they put an even larger reserve away, and that's because for a lot of lawmakers, memories are fresh of what happens when a budget is passed and then oil prices tank, and uh, you have a fiscal emergency at that point. So, um, especially in a year when we were spending a lot of money, eight and a half billion dollars. Um, you know, putting a good amount of that aside in case 
uh, the pandemic uh, creates new spikes in cases or there's some other disruption to revenue and, and economic activity, uh, you know, I think that that just uh, was all around probably seen as the smart policy. And I'll also even jump in on that because we saw last year, what the, actually the onset of the pandemic, early reports that the oil and gas industry, as volatile as it is, was actually going to see a decline in revenue for New Mexico. This surplus is almost a surprise. I think lawmakers, when they were looking at the initial estimates, like they were looking at oil that's about, I think I saw as low as $28 a barrel. And at the at the most conservative estimate they were making during this session, they were saying it was a close to like 70, almost $80 a barrel and also making adjustments for where it could be even higher than that. So, I mean, we're at what, nine, nine, 18 months away from that period when we were feeling as if like what's going to run our entire economy wasn't going to be sustainable and wasn't going to be there. And I think that was another fascinating thing about what we saw here is that even though there was a push to try and give New Mexico maybe made maybe greater um, grab of possible energy resources and, and, and the economy that those resources can create. We didn't even see that really go that much far, even though many attempts were tried. And I'm, I'm speaking mostly to the hydrogen bill in particular. Um, but I think that was fascinating to understand that like, we're still dealing with a quite, we're, New Mexico is still quite dependent on a volatile industry. Okay, let's go ahead and transition into that topic. You know, we started with uh, speaking of making people happy. Um, talking about the budget doesn't quite get us there necessarily, and it's kind of hard to talk about something so amorphous. So let's uh, transition to, in, into issues. Um, we have environment reporter Hannah Grover on energy bills. Hannah, the big energy elephant in the room is hydrogen. Um, it was an exciting idea in the beginning, but maybe not quite as environmentally friendly as we'd want because of its need for natural gas to make hydrogen. So it died in the legislature, and then we weren't so sure, then we kind of were sure it was dead. And then you filed a new report on the comeback of the hydrogen hub just a couple of days ago. Firstly, first, why did it fail in the legislature? And, and then what's going on now? Oh, it's an interesting situation because hydrogen is our most abundant element, but it's also virtually always connected to other elements. So the most affordable way to get hydrogen currently is to use natural gas, which is predominantly methane or CH4, and strip the carbon away from the hydrogen. But that has a lot of problems with it. First, what do you do with the carbon when you take it off the hydrogen? Um, blue hydrogen is really what's been talked about a lot in the state, and that involves basically pumping the carbon underground into these deep reservoirs, but we don't actually have any wells in New Mexico currently to do that. Um, there's some exploration in the San Juan Basin, but currently nothing concrete. So in November, the governor announced she was going to include hydrogen in the legislative session. And some of the people I've talked to have said it was sort of a mistake for her to do it at that time, but there was not enough time for legislators to become educated about this very complicated bill. And this bill was not just, hey, let's pursue the federal funding for a hydrogen hub. It was Let's have these types of taxes for it. Um, 
tax credits for it, um, some for blue, some for water-based hydrogen. And so it was very complicated. And really, we didn't see the, the bill itself to be able to evaluate it until two days before it went to its first committee hearing. So a lot of people felt that that was not enough time. But really, I think one of the big things that impacted it was in August, Robert Howards and Mark Jacobson, their couple of researchers, um, Robert Howards with Cornell and Mark Jacobson is with Stanford, they published this analysis called How Green is Blue Hydrogen? And basically what they found is that greenhouse gas footprint for hydrogen produced from fossil fuels, even when it's coupled with carbon capture, is 20% greater than burning natural gas or coal for heat. And so the environmental groups saw that and they were like, yeah, this is not a good idea for New Mexico. So that got a lot of the people that were key to win over for supporting hydrogen, um, got them sort of saying, no, this is just a subsidy to keep natural gas going to continue reliance on fossil fuels. But we still have this $8 billion of federal funding out there for states to potentially pursue for hydrogen hubs. And it's for four different hydrogen hubs, each one would get $2 billion. So this, so last week, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham signed a memorandum of understanding with Colorado and Utah and Wyoming that the four states are going to collectively come together to pursue $2 billion of that funding and create a regional hydrogen hub where there would be pieces in all four states. So that's essentially where we are now. Okay. Um, it's a federal no, money grab. I, no, no, that's what's fascinating to me about the like hydrogen stuff is that, because I follow the broadband like infrastructure development a lot. And it follows a similar track when it comes to the federal government is providing X amount of dollars for broadband development. But if the state were to provide X amount of dollars combined with the federal dollars, the federal, the feds will not only give them a matching amount, sometimes even more. So this, like they're, this, the feds are almost requiring a state investment. And that's how I viewed it. Hannah, I could be wrong here, but that's how I viewed the hydrogen debate was that New Mexico has to first show it has an investment in hydrogen in order for the federal government to invest its dollars in New Mexico for that hydrogen hub. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And New Mexico has been, for the last year, lobbying the federal government. We've had the Department of Energy secretary come out to Farmington to tour a facility that manufactures um, small generators that use hydrogen. So we've been, we've had a very vocal discussion for about a year about hydrogen in New Mexico. And that was what's fascinating to me was to see the, the Biden energy or the infrastructure plan for the Biden administration get almost flatly rejected by a democratic controlled state legislature when it comes to, when it comes to hydrogen. All right. There's a political surprise that came out of the session that <laughs> I think we'll get to more of those before we're done talking today. Um, 
Let's talk a little bit about oil and gas. Those are the cash cows for New Mexico, and there were some related bills. Uh, Hannah, we have lots of what we call orphaned wells in the state, and there was a bill to help get those kind of closed up safely. Um, then the Environment and Energy and Minerals Departments each wanted budget boosts for more field inspectors. How did those things work out? Yeah, so we did not see a lot of success with those things. Um, so early on at the beginning of the session, the governor, um, well, before the session starts, the governor releases her proposed budget and the legislative finance committee releases theirs. And the first thing we saw was there's a huge discrepancy between how much funding will be going to the environment department and the energy minerals and natural resources department in the two proposed budgets. The governor, of course, wanted a lot more funding than the LFC proposed. And ultimately what you saw was a little bit more than what the LFC proposed, but still not close to what the departments say they need. And at the same time, you've seen an increase in the amount of, due, of responsibilities these two departments have had. Um, we have the new methane regulations and the ozone precursor rules and a lot of other stuff to address climate change is coming out. And these two departments are largely leading those efforts, but don't have, they say they don't have enough funding to really make a difference. And when it comes to orphaned wells, it's, we have so much of a, so many wells that it would take a lot more money to fund cleaning them up than we currently have even proposed. And like we don't actually know how many wells there are right, out right, there. Like thousands. Yes. And some of them, I mean, we've had oil and gas development in the state for more than a hundred years. So we have a century of legacy that needs to be cleaned up. Okay, Hannah, you just said climate change a minute ago. Um, several reporters noted that the governor's state of the state address uh, did not use those words, climate change. Did it come up in the legislature? Yeah, it was talked about a lot during the legislature, especially when we were talking about two pieces of legislation in particular, the Clean Future Act and the Green Amendment. So the Clean Future Act was really looking at how do we get the state on a path to net zero by 2050, which I don't know if you guys saw today, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its Working Group 2 report that basically said, we need to get there or else the world is in trouble. Um, we're already seeing the impacts of climate change. Um, the UN Secretary General called the report an atlas of human suffering. So it, we don't have the most rosy outlook for the future if we don't cut emissions. So the Clean Future Act was one of the pieces of legislation that the governor really pushed for. Um, and it would basically codify what she's, a goal that she put out in an executive order. Then the other one, the Green Amendment, would basically allow the voters to choose whether or not to amend the state's constitution in the Bill of Rights section to include environmental rights, including the right to stable climate. However, in neither of these proposals actually 
made it to the governor's desk or anything like that. Um, the Clean Future Act ran out of time and the Green Amendment was tabled in House Judiciary. Now, Algernon, you're down in southern New Mexico. You're closer to oil and gas country than many of us are uh, up here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. I'm kind of wondering what uh, people thought about the Green Amendment down in your region. Um, is there such thing as a, an energy producer who was for environmental regulation? Does that exist? It gets touchy. Um so the, really, in the southeastern part of our state, um, around the Permian Basin region in particular, um, there is a, a yeah, I, I recently did a, did a podcast with Adrian Hedden, who reports for the Carlsbad Current Argus, and, and he's uh, our, our sibling paper. And he said that there's a widespread um, sense that renewable energy, while attractive, is not going to challenge the behemoth of fossil fuels. And um, there's this sort of sense of what's possible politically and economically versus the implacability of physics and chemistry, which are not subject to political lobbying or uh, anybody's charisma. Um, there is a clock and what, um, <laughs> briefly editorializing, I think that the, the, the longer the more time that passes before significant, drastic, aggressive cuts are made and infrastructure is built to support a non-carbon energy uh, lifestyle and system, uh, the more time that passes before we do that, the more drastic the changes will be necessary, including changes to, frankly, societal structures and relations. And so, um, I don't know that we're really seriously having that conversation yet because so many livelihoods, so many careers and so many industries are really uh, basically based on pushing this problem further down the road. Um, and that's why even when we have a conversation about hydrogen, we're still talking about natural gas. Going off of what Algernon was saying, I'm up in the San Juan Basin, and there's definitely a lot of concern in the San Juan Basin as we talk about energy transition in general. Um, whether it's coal or natural gas or oil, we, are, we have all three, and they are the basis of our economy. And going around my neighborhood even, just talking to people, um, you'll have, you hear concerns, will my husband have a job if this bill passes, and stuff like that. We did just briefly uh, touch on renewables there a, a moment ago. Uh, Algernon mentioned it. I know, Sean, you did a little bit of reporting on some of the renewable energy bills, uh, solar, wind, and so forth. Uh, do you have anything to report there? Yeah, we were looking at possible tax breaks for individuals who uh, purchase, and it was a small tax break. I think at, at most, the tax break that was passed eventually is only going to serve up to 200 individuals. And these are individuals who already have the capacity to be able to purchase 
um, the the infrastructure to purchase uh, solar or wind panel, not wind panels, but solar panels, geothermal panels was the other one that I was thinking about. And so in order to be able to do that, it requires that you need to have a sizable income. You're likely not a working class New Mexican. The idea from this tax break was that this would eventually lead to more New Mexicans who are working class to be able to afford this, creating the economy, boosting the economy so it's more affordable and only time will tell until we actually see that, but it was a small step forward. And I think a lot of the legislation that we saw that wasn't budget related, whether it comes to energy, whether it comes to criminal justice, I think that so much of it was also like a, a tiny step. It was it was a ballerina step, if you will, just as, as to how far we're actually moving with this 30 day session. And I think we saw that in every facet of the legislation that was passed. Okay, well, we have to talk about water anytime we're talking about environment or energy or climate in New Mexico. Uh, there was a discussion of qualifications, changing qualifications for the state engineer. It's another personnel issue, which, uh, by the way, I'm not sure that we did clarify, did environment and energy and natural resources get the money they wanted to expand on uh, inspectors on the field? Not as much as they had hoped. Okay. All right. So as far as the state engineer goes, uh, how did that settle out? Were there and, and were there other water bills? Um, so the qualifications for the state engineer uh, really going into the session, as you know, we did not have a state engineer um, because John D'Antonio had decided to retire and that was effective December 31st. So there was a search going on to find somebody to replace him. And there are, it's a field that doesn't have a ton of people qualified. So they thought maybe if we expand the opportunities, expand who can be state engineer, we can get better qualified candidates who can run the office. So John D'Antonio actually opposed this. He said, if we allow lawyers to run the office of the state engineer, they're not going to be able to do stuff like oversee dam safety that the state engineer has to do. But during the session, of course, the governor chose Mike Hammond as state engineer and he was confirmed by the Senate. So it sort of lost momentum at after Mike Hammond was announced as the appointee. Um, and he is an engineer. Yes, he is. And he has a lot of background in water. He's, he was the water advisor before. He's overseeing the Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District. He knows the water issues in the state probably as well as anyone. So um, at least for now, it seems like there's a state engineer who's qualified at the helm. Whether we see this brought up again in future sessions, is a question left to be answered. And there were a lot of, well, not a lot of, but there were several bills introduced dealing with water. Unfortunately, with, a, with it being a 30-day session, not a lot could be accomplished. For instance, there was a bill about establishing a dryland resiliency center. And that did not really go anywhere in part because of the time constraints of the session. Okay. 
Let's pivot a little bit. Sean, you covered a lot of different issues this year, but I think you mostly focused on education, I think. Uh, what were the big takeaways for, for education? Did legislators put, I, I love this, did legislators put our money where their mouths are? <laughs> yeah, education is the uh, the one biggest element of the state budget. And I believe it's like $3.8 billion of the, of the New Mexico's overall budget goes to education. Um, now that includes operating costs, paying for bus drivers and the gas for the buses, as well as keeping the lights on in schools. But it does also include a substantial increase in how we are spending money on kids. And I think New Mexico is always trying to figure out exactly how to spend money on its children and, and its public school systems. Um, one thing that is guiding New Mexico's um, spending and investment in education is the uh, Yazzie Martinez lawsuit. And we did see some substantial um, investment in those programs. Um, when it comes to the budget, you're seeing another increase, um, I believe the third year in a row of increase um, when I say third year in a row, because the first year of the of year three was the creation of this budget line, which is um, culturally relevant curriculum and language services, that has continuously seen an increase in spending. Um, one thing that was debated during how that spending is going to go forward was if you were going to, if the state was going to provide tribal school districts the autonomy to be able to spend that money as they see fit to fit their community needs. Um, as of right now, there was legis there was legislation that was proposed that would have like allowed tribal education departments to be able to spend money they received from the state on these programs. Um, that did not pass. And now there's going to be a little bit of a conflict when it comes to how that money might be spent. We might see more of these issues come up either in another court um, proceeding because Yazi Martinez is an active lawsuit. Um, we also may just see districts determine how they can spend that money because there is a little bit of a leeway for them when it comes to how they spend that money for students. And when I talk about what they could spend that money on, like they could spend that money on adapting uh, curriculum specific to like a, a tribal entity. Like, you know, we have 23 tribal governments in New Mexico. Almost all of them have schools that they operate. You could see those school districts spend money that's going to be specific for that community and what it means. Um, you could have Karis language being taught in Cochiti Pueblo or Santo Domingo Pueblo. Um, you could see like more um, uh, money geared towards providing curriculum in the maths or sciences or STEM programs that is actually that has some relevancy towards the cultural um, teachings and understanding of, of the Diné people. So there's a lot that could be spent and how you're going to boost that element. Um, but again, the biggest thing was just an overall increase in pay for teachers. Um, and that's supposed to also help boost this this and leave the state from the lawsuit with Yazi Martinez, because the thought is if we're paying teachers more and if we're paying teachers more to be in locations that may not be the most desirable, that may be in like some of the toughest schools in the state in a rural community far away from, you know, hubs like Santa Fe or even other border towns like Gallup or Farmington, if that, as long as they're getting paid, then hopefully that they're actually providing that instruction and commitment to that school district. Uh, the one big element that we did see, and we're still waiting to see if this is signed into law by the governor, um, who's expected to sign the overall teacher pay increase tomorrow, um, which, which means there's three levels of teachers. There's level one, level two, level three, and it's all based on how you start. 
um, there's going to be a $10,000 increase for each level. So level one teachers are going to go from 40,000 to 50,000. Level two is going to go from 50 to 60. Level three is going to go from 60 to 70. And on top of that, they're going to receive an overall 7% increase, which is going to go to all faculty, staff, teachers, everybody from the janitor to the principal to the teacher. They're all going to get uh, pay raise increases. And we're expecting to have one of those bills signed uh, tomorrow. But one thing that uh, that does lead, and I'll be quick on this, towards the Yazzie Martinez was a bill passed that was going to boost native language instructor pay to match that of a level two salary teacher. So suddenly Native American instructor, Native, Amer- Native American language instructors, excuse me, will then have almost a hundred percent increased in pay. Um, on average, they make about $35,000 a year. But if this bill is signed into law, they're going to make it there that they will then make close to 60 plus thousand dollars a year. This is going to affect about 100 different teachers statewide who have a certificate who aren't necessarily even licensed individual licensed teachers. They have to apply for this particular certificate that shows that they have capacity and expertise in teaching native language and culture. And oftentimes a lot of these individuals have graduate programs, have bachelors, have college degrees that are not in teaching, but they just have this skill as to what it's like to be native in the community. And that's something that we're gonna see as, as hopefully see something boosted even further going, going forward. Okay, I just wanna jump in and remind viewers that this is your New Mexico government. We're talking about the legislature, the budget and other big political issues like education, environment and crime in just a moment. Uh, Add your comments or questions by either dropping them below in Facebook or by emailing us at ynmg at kunm.org. Now, Sean, you uh, just talked about Yazzie Martinez some I guess I want to clarify that it's Yazi Martinez lawsuit is not just about equity for all of New Mexico's school children, but also kind of creating culturally relevant curriculum in particular regions and areas. Is that right? Yeah. And I should also be I should also clarify that it's also not designed just for Native American students. The the Yazi Martinez lawsuit was brought together by a coalition of people in New Mexico who come from populations that represent students who live in poverty, students who English is a second language and students with disabilities, including students who are Native American. And so this actually affects a majority of New Mexico's student population, people who went to public schools in the state. Um, And so when looking at like the targeted areas, you're looking like. Where, where, where Hannah is at and, you know, the four corners where you have several school districts that have a predominant, you know, Native American population, but Native American culture and teachings aren't taught at an adequate level, at a level that's even like required by the Constitution of the United States, uh, the, the, the Constitution of New Mexico, excuse me. Um, and, and that's one area in particular that could see a boost when it comes to this native language uh, teacher pay, because the idea is if you're showing a competing salary for somebody who can understand native language as well as native culture, then they're also part of the overall um, like they're, they're encouraged to participate in public school and, and become teachers and become those like community advocates that are helping out those students who are at the most vulnerable um, this, and, and then for supporting the other areas when it comes to language, you also saw a boost um, in support for, for um, English service um, or for, for English as a second language learners as well, where you're going to see more investment to teaching English 
to students who, who, who come in speaking another language in New Mexico's public schools. And there's also going to be some infrastructure elements that's going to provide greater accessibility for New Mexico students who are disabled to be able to just go to class in a way that isn't going to obstruct or like, you know, hinder their daily activities. Okay, we got a comment on Facebook from Judith Cooper. I'm not quite sure what this means. Maybe it'll mean something to you. She said, ancillary excluded. Any ideas? If not, we can ask uh, Judith to maybe follow up with. Yeah, if she could explain what that means. Ancillary excluded is something I'm not quite sure of. That could be a term that's spoken in the conversation, but I I don't know what she's talking about. All right, Judith, we're here for you if you want to try to expand on that for us. I do want to go ahead and touch on the controversy over critical race theory. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Um, and I'm going to come to you, Algernon, Algernon on this, because anti-CRT, uh, the bill was introduced by Rebecca Dow from Truth or Consequences. And we often think of New Mexico south of Albuquerque as more conservative and, you know, maybe parts of the very north part of the state, too. Uh, was there significant support for the bill down in your area around southern New Mexico? Certainly there was some, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation. I won't call it conversation. There's a lot of debate about critical race theory and what people perceive it to be and how it is defined. And uh, as you pointed out, um, House member uh, Rebecca Dow submitted a bill for this session. It was not heard. It was deemed not germane by the rules committee uh, to a budget session. Rebecca Dow, uh, it should be mentioned, is a Republican primary candidate for governor. Um, She was accused by some of trying to use the CRT controversy to bring attention to herself as a candidate. But whatever one thinks about a claim like that, CRT is generating a lot of heat and a lot of debate. Uh, Certainly Las Cruces public schools, uh, their school board meetings have been crowded lately. Um, when we were having hearings about PED's social studies uh, revisions, um, that kind of became a forum for people to come and complain about what they perceived as critical race theory. In um, in uh, Representative Dow's bill, it was more or less defined. I'm not quoting exactly, and I hope I'm being fair to the phrasing, but it was basically the bill would have prevented schools from teaching that any Um, cultural identity, read white people, is intrinsically racist, which is not critical race theory. It's it's, uh, critical race theory. It's kind of hard to define, but maybe I'll take a stab at it. It's basically having conversations pedagogically about the fact that racism is not a matter of individual conduct or behavior alone, but that systems that distribute outcomes throughout society can have racially biased outcomes based on our history, criminal justice, housing, employment. Um, And so there's a kind of systemic racism that uh, can be addressed and analyzed and perhaps mitigated. Um, This is not taught. (laughs) I mean, there isn't a thing that is tangibly critically race theory that is taught However, um, uh, there are those who are arguing that whatever is said about it, that there is something sort of covertly CRT-ish in how we're discussing race in our schools. And there's a lot of suspicion that there's basically the, the buzzword is indoctrination going on. 
that we're teaching kids what to think rather than how to think by having these discussions about racism historically and the impacts of colonialism and everything that followed on communities of colors, including first peoples and the nations that were here on this land originally. And so um, that bill did not get heard. I think the debate rages on. It remains to be seen whether it will be a potent political issue going into the upcoming election cycles. I have a feeling we'll be hearing quite a lot about it. Um, it's always good when your candidate is coming to you and talking about critical race theory. It's a great opportunity to say, what is that exactly? And really pin them down and ask them to define what they're talking about. Okay, I just want to come back and mention I got a note from one of the producers. We think Judith, who said ancillary excluded, uh, was probably talking about ancillary uh, educational employees. We're not so sure that they are that they qualify for that seven percent raise that Sean mentioned. Um, I'm not sure. We'll check on that later, unless you happen to know, Sean. No, again, I would also like to know like what the definition of ancillary is, whether that's like, you know, education instructors or substitutes. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't quite know. Um, but real quickly, if you don't mind, I just want to quickly say to Algernon's point that like, yeah, Dow presented that, also presented it again in another amendment during the overall budget conversation where she was proposing no money will go to any school that teaches CRT, which it was a non-starter. And I know that this is a conversation that's being, you know, pummeled across the country and New Mexico is seeing it with the particular people who are running for governor. But ultimately, like when it comes down to like, if it's actually going to do anything, it's a non-starter. Like that's, that's really where I'm at with it. Like we can have the conversation, we can use the political rhetoric talked about in campaigns, but you have to remember who's starting it and who's ending it. Because right now it's being started by people who are not from New Mexico, but it's being ended by New Mexicans and it doesn't get very far. Okay, we're starting to talk about issues with uh, political implications that are going to come around a little bit later in the year when we get into the, uh, well, a little further into election season. Uh, the other hot button issue this election year is crime. The entire Senate, the governor, and the attorney general are up for election this November, and quite a few of them are talking about crime. Uh, I want to go to Austin. There was some 11th hour drama with criminal justice reform this year. Can you kind of tell us about the circuitous uh, route crime bills took this session? That's right. I mean, there were there was a lot of work in legislative committees, both last year and in this session, trying to hammer out, you know, what do we do about uh, New Mexico's relatively high crime rates in some part of the state, parts of the state? And they were, you know, they were debating specific proposals for most of the 30-day session. And then in the final week, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joseph Cervantes down from Algernon's neck of the woods there in Las Cruces uh, and his legislative staff actually created a sort of a compilation of what he called was the best of, of what the, what the legislature had, had come up with. Um, and, you know, Joseph has a really particular view on, on what he would include and would not. Um, and we ended up with this, this very large, uh, I think $201 million crime package. Um, but even after the package was, was put together, uh, we saw 
a lot of late night debates and amendments and changes to what would end up in the final version that is awaiting, I believe, uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's signature. Um, the one that gave me the most whiplash trying to follow was uh, Senator Jeff Steinborn's proposal, which would have, uh, which was approved by the Judiciary Committee uh, nearly unanimously. It would have tied part of our state's cannabis tax revenue to funding addiction treatment. Um, this was uh, this was received very favorably by Republicans and Democrats on the Judiciary Committee uh, in the in in one of the final. I think it was the last finance committee hearing of the of the legislative session. Um, but later that night, Cervantes uh, brought together his judiciary committee. They only met for about five minutes. And in that in those five minutes, they reverted the bill back to where it had been before the judiciary committee uh, approved Steinborn's amendments. So um, that was just one example. Uh, another example was um, we saw a years-long effort by LGBTQ plus organizations in the state to include uh, a, a provision uh, banning what's called the, the gay or queer panic defense, where, um, you know, someone is accused of a violent crime uh, and uh, they make a defense that, oh, the only reason that I acted in such a way is because I was surprised by the sexuality or gender identity of my victim. Uh, and so in the end, a number of senators negotiated that into the bill. And that was in the final version that's headed to the governor's desk. It would represent a major legal victory for uh, LGBTQ organizations in the state. And I think it would actually be in a huge contrast to what we've seen from a lot of state legislatures across the country that have been uh, banning sort of anti-trans, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, passing anti-trans bills. Um, it sort of represents a, a progressive, uh, uh, you know, counterweight to what's going on in, in Republican-controlled legislatures across the country. Um, and uh, we also saw, you know, an entire sort of uh, shift away from uh, this this rebuttable presumptions. Uh, proposal that I believe uh, we were going to discuss that that would have sort of flipped our understanding of innocent until proven guilty on its head and said someone that is being uh, someone that is accused of a violent crime would need to prove that they are not a danger to the community. Under our current law, you have to prove the, the prosecution has to prove that they are a danger. That was a that the, the governor's office was advocating for that proposal right up until the second to last week of the session. And then we saw the bill get totally destroyed in Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, we saw multiple um, Democratic lawmakers siding with uh, Senator Joseph Cervantes, an independent, saying, you know, this is this would, you know, destroy our fundamental uh, right to liberty in the New Mexico Constitution. Uh, that bill was completely rewritten to be complete something completely different. Um, and so we saw a lot of those sort of last hour changes to the crime package, because I think that a lot of uh, lawmakers are seeing their electoral uh, chances uh, directly tied into that legislation. 
Yeah, and we are seeing uh, a lot of motivated Democrats out there, you know, m- motivated to talk about crime. Usually that's a Republican issue. Uh, I wonder if more progressive lawmakers have kind of a distinctly uh, partisan way of confronting crime. Does it look th- different when you're talking about crime from the left side of the aisle? I think that you could say um you could say there's a there is a partisan divide within some parts of the Democratic Party. I think that's a that some of the more moderate members of both chambers uh, worked alongside Republicans throughout the session uh, to write and rewrite legislation. I mean, that, you know, some of the some of the most important parts of the crime package are creating uh, new crimes like aggregated fleeing and evading of a police officer. Another part of the package makes it a felony. For someone who uh, causes bodily injury as the result of fleeing. Um, and, and there's also new crimes of brandishing or using a firearm in commission of a felony in New Mexico. Those proposals were written and rewritten over and over with the help of uh, Republican House member uh, William Ream, and, uh, who is a Republican, and, and uh, Democrat Meredith Dixon. Um, so I, I think that we're seeing a sort of a a bipartisan return to the politics of the 1990s um, with regard to to crime legislation. Uh, think, you know, Bill Clinton's uh, crime package of the early 90s. We're talking about mandatory minimums, community policing, and harsh nar- narcotics and firearms penalties. Um, and, and it's it's been it's very been very interesting to watch. Uh, you know, political affiliations sort of break down um, when it comes to talking about crime in New Mexico. Okay, Algernon, now we're talking about who's talking about crime. And I would say for the most part, uh, this year, a lot of it has been related to Albuquerque. Um, You know, they have the dubious distinction of having a new record number of homicides in 2021, for instance. Is crime just a big city issue or is it getting oxygen in Las Cruces and other smaller cities? Well, certainly in Las Cruces, I mean, in New Mexico's second largest city, crime is certainly something that uh, generates a lot of interest and in our smaller communities as well. Um, Actually, two of our reporters at the Sun News, Justin Garcia and Michael McDevitt, did a deep dive into years of, of public safety and crime data. And they found that when you just strictly look at the data, some kinds of crime are up, some kinds of crime are actually down, some kinds of violent crime are actually you know, as low as they've been in years, and there's been an uptick in some kinds of crime, domestic violence, and things like that. So the data is actually a very mixed picture, but the perception is very important, and you'd better believe that that moves politicians um, who want to be seen as acting in the public interest, um, whatever the actual state of, of public safety and danger is. And then, of course, in uh, areas where there's higher unemployment, I'm thinking of Luna County, which always has double digit unemployment, even in good times. Um, There's a lot of desperation. There's a lot of addiction. There's a lot of um, crimes of of desperation and also personal health crises um, that are not necessarily out of criminal intention so much as they are about a sense of personal crisis and desperation. And so... Also, besides all of the media attention that crime stories get and the attention it gets from politicians, you also have community groups on social media platforms, uh, Nextdoor and Facebook and such, that are constantly 
talking about, uh, you know, posting pictures from security cameras and talking about vandalism and burglaries in the neighborhood. And so there's this real sense that you get from the media eye of things being incredibly dangerous out there. And it's kind of a distorted picture, but it's very useful for people who can benefit from it, including people running for office. Okay, we are right at about the one hour mark. I just wanna quickly zoom back out and take a couple big picture uh, questions, take some, get the, get a big picture idea from the whole panel about what should we, do, we should expect in the coming year. Uh, we saw, Senator Scherer from Farmington performed a fairly ugly filibuster to close out the session. He talked for several hours about the rules of baseball and hot dogs and some other nonsense. Uh, the purpose was to obstruct the final push to get bills to the governor. Were there other filibusters that any of you saw this year? Should we expect more of this? And, you know, there's all this talk about doing away with the filibuster in the U.S. Congress. Have we heard anything? Have any of you heard anything like that in New Mexico? Not directed to anyone in particular, but do any of you have some, have some feedback? Oh, Sean, we can't hear you. Here, um, I was gonna say um, I, I did watch Cher's uh, full speech and filibuster, and while I'm not quite aware if these are in fact filibusters, but the legislature does spend a lot of time. Um, for instance, that last couple of days, they had a lot of announcements and proclamations memorializing legislators who are retiring or leaving. Um, some of these would go for, I think one of them went several, like went over an hour. And that's a lot of time to give to a person who's a volunteer who's going to be leaving the chamber. And I understand decorum, I understand respect, but it's like, do we need to be doing this on the public time when there's hours left, when there's insubstantial legislation to be debated? Okay, you know, the other thing I wanted to ask about is transparency. We had the issue of all the dummy bills, uh, and I don't think it was anything new this year. Um, those are the bills that legislators will file ahead of time, and they more or less leave them blank and then come in and fill them out later in the session, you know, after the deadline to introduce new legislation. Uh, we saw that with the hydrogen bill, I believe wasn't one of the crime bills, a dummy bill, maybe some of the others. Um, there's questions about transparency there. Uh, have you guys heard any significant talk from, you know, the foundation from open government or ethics watch or, or any arguments about, uh, against doing this more in the future? Or is this just ingrained? Is that part of the way we work in this legislature? Well you know, with these short sessions, um, there's a deadline for filing legislation, and there may be occasions where, an example, um, one year, a couple years ago, I did a report on um, educators' pensions, specifically New Mexico State University, but it impacted thousands of people at other educational institutions. And it was during a legislative session, and late in the session, one of these dummy bills, they don't like it when we call them that anymore, but one of these, uh, one of these bills was actually used to file some last-minute legislation to try to uh, fix that problem. So um, it's a it's a thing that emerges when you have these. Again, we're sort of back to where we were at the start of this conversation about these uh, about these short sessions where the time becomes this issue that you have to negotiate. It can also be weaponized, however, 
Um, and, and that's the, that's the other end of that stick. So maybe there's some nuance there, uh, kind of like lobbyists, sometimes they do good things for us. Right. Um, all right. Finally, we've seen some bills come back year after year, sometimes being fine tuned other times waiting for a more sympathetic legislature. One that comes to mind is HB 52, which makes fentanyl testing strips legal to possess. Uh, you know, finally this year, uh, they had been considered drug paraphernalia. Uh, the idea is hopefully this will cut down on fentanyl overdoses. Uh, are there bills or other ideas that any of you have seen that you just think we aren't done with yet that are going to come back in 2023 or maybe even in a special session? What are you guys watching for in the somewhat near future? Austin, how about you go first? And we'll go around the uh, little circle. I would I would not be surprised if we see the Voting Rights Act come into a special session. I think the um, the broad debate across the United States about um, what democracy means and what what do, what does uh, a a small minority of the country ruling over the rest of us uh, mean? And I think that the sort of the backlash to Senator Scherer's filibuster at the end of the session was massive and widespread. And I would not be surprised if the if the governor's office calls a special session to get that through. There was a lot of support for that bill uh, across the party. Okay, Algernon, I saw you nodding. Do you have uh, anything to add? What else are you looking for in the uh, coming months? Well, I mean, that's I think that's definitely coming back. I don't know if it's going to be a special session or if it's just going to come back in the next session. Um, it's certainly uh, viewed as urgent enough to warrant that. Um, I know that one thing from this part of the state is um, there was a bill that's come back a couple of times and just has not found its way to the floor yet. Um, Las Cruces representative Angelica Rubio and uh, uh, State Senator Carrie Hamblin, both from Las Cruces, have been trying to move this bill um, addressing the rights of tenants and um, some limitations on uh, landlords. Um, this bill has been through some revisions. It's been it's gotten some work in committee, and it just keeps running out of time uh, with, uh, especially at the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so, I'm expecting that's probably going to come back. Uh, um, in, in, at the neck at the 60 day. Okay. And Hannah, what about, uh, environmental or energy bills? Are there some that you expect to, uh, keep seeing topics that we're going to keep hearing about? Yeah. So one that I am pretty sure will be coming back is the clean fuel standard act. This one was, it ended up being the house voted against it in the early morning hours of the last day of the session. Um, but it's not the first time we've seen this legislation like this introduced. Um, right now, the legislature may not be completely ready for something like that. Uh, there are lots of questions about it that still need to be answered. But one question that will need to be decided is how the geopolitical sphere, the um, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, how that's going to impact energy demand, and if that will make stuff like biodiesel more attractive in the future, or um, if even electric vehicles take off in the future. 
Okay. And I think before I go to Sean, I should probably mention that, you know, I I said special session, I said 2023, but there's also a bunch of interim committee meetings that'll come up kind of uh, through the summer and later in the year. And a lot of the details on these things really get hammered out in those interim committee meetings. A lot of it's figured out before they finally do get together in the big bodies. Uh, So we will keep an eye on those. Um, But Sean Griswold, What are you uh, following in the next six to what, nine months, whatever to to the next uh, session? Yeah, well, I think the education package, education bills are going to be the one thing that you always see heavy in the the interim committees. And you're right, like so much of this happens before they actually meet for the overall session, 30 or 60 days. So yeah, I would say education packages. I think the tribal remedy framework, there's still several bills that are part of that. This is um, a means by uh, several Native American lawmakers to pass uh, legislation that will support Yazi Martinez. Um, I, we saw one of them pass, which was the Native American language instructor bill. And I think we're going to see an effort to get more of those passed. Um, But I also agree with everybody else. I think the voter bill is going to be something that we're going to see if, in fact, it does hit a special session. I don't think that I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's definitely going to be something that's going to come back. And then also we're going to see another effort on tough on crime approach. And I think what whoever is the governor and the executive next year it's going to really direct us as to how much that happens and and what does come from this legislature. But I think everything we saw when it came to the tough on crime approach. Um, for bills that were proposed and didn't last very long is all going to come right back. Okay, I think with that, we've reached the end of our discussion. Thanks so much to our guests, Algernon Damasa, Hannah Grover, Sean Griswold, and Austin Fisher. You can think of this show as the closer for the Your New Mexico Government Project for this session. It was a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Thornburg Foundation focused on helping the public access a more open government. Please keep sharing your thoughts on Twitter, hashtag YNMG, on Facebook in the comments section below, and by email at ynmg at kunm.org. Come back to us for legislative news through the year and into next session, and you can be sure we'll be here if the governor calls a special session this year. I'm Kaveh Movahead with your New Mexico government. See you later. That Facebook Live was really fun to do. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new along the way. KUNM and New Mexico PBS will continue following the legislature through the year, and you can bet we'll be back here to talk about a special session if there is one and to cover the roundhouse in 2023. Follow the hashtag YNMG on Twitter to catch any updates we have along the way. Thanks again to the Thornburg Foundation for funding our efforts to shine light on the inner workings of our government. I'm Kaveh Movahead. It's been my pleasure to be with you through this year's legislative session coverage for your New Mexico government. Take care.